Social Democracy from 50 Ideas You Really Need to Know Politics by Ben Derbrie. The three pillars on which Marx's vision of an ideal future society is founded, collective solidarity over individualism, freedom over exploitation, and equality for all over sectional interest, have remained firmly at the core of socialist thinking. How these ends are to be obtained, however, has been bitterly contested, producing deep rifts within socialism. Marx himself insisted that the transition from capitalism to socialism could be brought about only by violent revolution of the working people, who would eventually and inevitably rise up and overthrow their capitalist oppressors, whereupon they would abolish private property and seize control of the means of production. While revolutionary Marxism long remained the orthodox social socialist position, from early on, it coexisted with growing unease alongside a less explosive view of how the shared ideals of socialism could be realized. Over time, a schism developed between orthodox Marxists and those who thought that a socialist society could come about otherwise than by revolution. The latter, subsequently known as social democrats, henceforth followed a peaceful, constitutional path to socialism that was necessarily at odds with the course of their revolutionary cousins. Origins The evolutionary, non-revolutionary route to socialism has its origins as a political movement and doctrinal disputes that came to the fore in the fledgling Social Democratic Party of Germany, or SPD, which formed from an already querulous alliance of existing socialist organizations in 1875. Foremost among the so-called revisionists who favored a more gradual, peaceful transition to socialism was the German political theorist and activist Edward Bernstein, noting that the conditions of working people far from deteriorating were generally improving, particularly through pressure exerted by recently formed trade unions. He began to question the inevitability, indeed the desirability, of the crisis of capitalism that Marx predicted and on which his revolutionary thesis depended. In a book known in English as Revolutionary Socialism, written in 1899, he argued that the triumph of socialism would follow not from some hypothetical cataclysm of ca class struggle, but from its success in alleviating the misery of the poor. In his view, the overturning of capitalism was no more than a means to certain socialist ends, the most important of which was winning justice for the disadvantaged in society, and the surest way of achieving these ends was to work within existing political structures and processes, not to overthrow and start from scratch, but to adapt and reform. In time, he believed the extension of universal suffrage would allow workers to vote in socialist parties with a mandate to realize socialist objectives. The efforts of Bernstein and fellow revisionists to advance socialism within a democratic context, trusting in electoral and parliamentary means, predictably provoked a furious reaction from orthodox revolutionary socialists. The German revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg, for one, bitterly attacked the democratic approach in 1904, dismissing parliamentary politics as a historical determined form of the class rule of the bourgeoisie. Deep differences in outlook, exacerbated by the First World War and cemented in place by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, took institutional form as communist 
parties sprang up all over Europe in opposition to diverse socialist groups, united in their commitment to constitutional means. The Swedish Model Shortly before and after the Second World War, a form of social democracy was established in Sweden that was to prove lastingly influential elsewhere. Enjoying a strong popular mandate and an almost unbroken hold on power between 1932 and 1976, the Swedish Social Democratic Workers' Party, or SAP, set about realizing its promise to create a people's home, the central feature of which was a cradle-to-grave welfare system that would offer a place of security for all the country's citizens. Within a few decades, Swedish society had been transformed by a succession of bold measures, including unemployment insurance, family and housing allowance, allowances, health services, pension schemes, and expanded and inclusive and an expanded and inclusive educational system. Underpinning the SAP's social program was a fresh approach to economics that was no less influential. Setting aside the central Marxist dogma of nationalization, the Swedish Social Democrats introduced a mixed economy in which business and industry were left largely in private ownership but were subject to substantial government direction. Such regulation included a range of measures to counter economic fluctuations, first used to good effect during the Great Depression of the 1930s, such as got job creation, investment in public works and services, and promotion of labor mobility. The cornerstones of Swedish social democracy were equality of wealth and income through redistribution taxation, pursuit of full employment through economic growth, provision of universal welfare, and promotion of workers' interests through collaboration with strong trade unions. Guided by these principles, the SAP was unprecedentedly successful in eradicating poverty and fostering strong social cohesion in Sweden. Unsurprisingly, the Swedish example proved inspirational to social democratic parties in other countries. Not all such parties were so quick to jettison classical socialist dogma. The British Labour Party, for instance, elected to power in 1945, introduced a national healthcare system while also taking control of major industries and public utilities. Generally, however, the policy focus of post-war social democrats was effective intervention to mitigate the inequalities of wealth and power caused by capitalism, not abolition of capitalism as such. Over time, public ownership of the means by which prosperity was generated became less important than ensuing that certain social groups were not excluded from the benefits that such prosperity could provide. Decline in the Third Way After decades of plenty that saw post-war social democratic parties Social democratic governments laid the foundations of modern social welfare programs across Europe. A number of factors conspired to bring a change in fortunes. The challenge for progressive social democrats had always been to maintain a politically sustainable balance between income from taxation and investment in public services. From Sweden and Britain, among others, that balance went seriously awry in the 1970s and 1980s as public borrowing spiraled out of control. Traditional heavy industries went into decline and delicate relationships between governments and trade unions became strained to breaking point. During this same period, in geopolitical terms, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of communism not only brought 
discredit on social democracy by association, but also jeopardized its customary occupancy of the middle ground between Soviet communism and American individualism. Even more menacing in the longer term, the forces of globalization, allowing rapid movement of capital and labor across borders, began to expose uncompetitive practices and to deprive national governments of the kind of control over their own economic dissenties on which social democratic interventionism depended. In an online world populated by vast multinational corporations, the ambitions of social democrats looked increasingly obsolete. Faced with this danger, many social democrats begin to contemplate a third way, a essentially a center-left position in which a sympathetic brand of capitalism would be allied to the socialist commitment to equality and welfare. In 1997, British New Labour under Tony Blair was elected in a landslide as pioneer and champion of the Third Way. But critics remained unconvinced, believing that the true price of salvaging social democracy, if indeed it had been saved at all, was the death of socialism. Thank you.